Hey, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Ernest O'Dunsey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to share the word with you. Um, as, been, as has been stated already, if you ran in the marathon or you volunteered in the marathon, thank you so much for loving our city so well. And if you did not, you can take what I say to myself every year, and you can use it for yourself. Next year is my year. All right, grab your Bible. Let's walk through this scripture together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And let me start out with just a confession. I hate flying. I hate flying. But when I say I hate flying, I don't really mean I hate flying. I mean I hate airports. Can't stand them. I actually went to Google and looked up, is there a word for people who have a fear of airports? And there was not one, so I coined my own term. I suffer from chronic portphobia. Chronic portphobia. And let me just bring you into my world. If we're ever traveling together, let me know what you're going to expect, what's going to happen. First, I'm going to text you and let you know we are going to need to meet at the airport two to five hours early. <laughs> Nothing extreme, just two to five hours early because I hate airports. And when I show up, I'm going to have on sweats. Sweats, you may ask, why? Because I don't want to have to take off my belt. So I'm coming in with sweats. And these sweats, the pockets are going to be turned inside out already. Okay? No jacket, shoes with no shoestrings, because I don't want to deal with any of the TSA shenanigans. And when I walk through the airport doors, my hands will already be up. <laughs> I hate airports, okay? Um, but recently, I had to get over my port phobia because I got invited to go on a mission trip to Ecuador. So I got over my port phobia, I dealt with the TSA shenanigans, and we got on the plane, we landed in Ecuador, and my breath was taken away. It is such a beautiful country. We were greeted at the gate by like 50, res by 50 natives of the country, and they're speaking to us. They're running up and hugging us. I have no idea what they're saying because I failed Spanish three times, so I'm just smiling and nodding, see, see, see. That's all I got after three years. And it is such a beautiful country. You walk outside the airport and there's palm trees. Palm trees, y'all. We in Oklahoma. There's palm trees, fresh air, and the people are just wonderful. They're so kind. They're so welcoming. And it was amazing. And this mission trip was no normal mission trip. It was a medical mission trip. And so I know what you're saying. Ernest, what type of medical experience do you have with your judgmental self? <laughs> I would have you know I've seen Grey's Anatomy <laughs> more than one season. I am well trained. What that means is I carried boxes. So we went on this medical mission trip, and we're going from small city, from, from, from small town to bustling city. We're dispensing medications. We're doing triage services. By we, I mean they. They're, we're doing all these good things. We're doing eyeglasses. We're, we're doing all this wonder, wonderful stuff in Ecuador. And all the people, it, it was just beautiful. I've got to see the body of Christ in a new way. 
It was amazing gathering with our Latin brothers and sisters and worshiping Jesus together. It was fantastic. On the final day before we came home, we went to the Museum of the Equator. It's on, literally, on the equator. And so we go to this museum, and they have all these different displays. One display is dedicated to the tribe of the shrunken heads. They would defeat their enemies, and they would take their heads and put them in these bowls and steam them, and they would literally shrink. That's pretty gruesome. And so we're, we're looking at this in, in a display, and then over here is a, is a display that's dedicated to the native vegetation and the native animals. It's like incredible. But the final display they do is something called the Coriolis effect. The Coriolis effect. So we walk to the equator line. It's this red line in the middle of the ground. And in the middle of it is this copper basin. It's this copper basin. And what they do is they fill the copper basin with water. They put a leaf on top, and they pull the plug, and the water goes straight down. But then they move six feet to the right of it, and they repeat the experiment. They fill it with water, put the leaf on top, pull the plug, and the water begins to move to the, the right in a clockwise motion as the leaf goes down. But then they move six feet to the south of the equator to the left, and they put the basin, fill it with water, pull the plug, and then the leaf goes left in a counterclockwise motion. Look at your still faces. You're not impressed. <laughs> Let me blow your mind. If you take a vacation to the northern hemisphere, and then you take a vacation to the southern hemisphere, when you flush the toilet, the toilet will go in the opposite direction, people. Some of y'all are going to go home tonight and play with your toilet, just flush, flush, flush. I know you are. Coriolis effect. Okay, what does that have to do with the Bible? Okay. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus putting the Coriolis effect on full display. What Jesus does is he sits on a mountaintop. He looks into the eyes of the people, and then he begins to say these things. I know you've heard your entire life as you were in the church and out of the church. When you were at school and in your family, you've heard it said your entire life. Blessed are the rich in possessions, for theirs are the shiny one-day delivery things of earth. <laughs> but I say unto you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Totally countercultural. You've heard it said your entire life. Blessed are they who don't complain, who pull their bootstraps, try harder, for they shall be comfortable. But I say unto you, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You've heard it said that blessed are the pure in motives, for they shall seem good. But I say unto you, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Countercultural, totally different, mind blowing. What Jesus is doing here is not merely setting a new standard, Jesus isn't merely raising the bar. 
What Jesus is doing is clutching the bar like a javelin in the hands of a cosmic Olympian. He's chunking it past the universe and saying, while looking you in the eye, try to pole vault that. What Jesus is saying to us on the sermon, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is you can't do it in your own strength. The kingdom life is totally different than anything you've experienced. It is countercultural. It is totally impossible outside of me. If I could sum up the Sermon in a Mountain, two statements, it'd be this. Good isn't good enough. Good isn't good enough. And if I could give it one more statement, it'd be this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so what Jesus does here, and this is what we experience on a day-by-day basis, life feels like it's going down the drain. Life at times can feel like everything is going crazy. On the job, in the family, in the home, at the school, it feels like it's going down the drain. But what Jesus is saying is, I have an invitation for you. I have an invitation for you to live in my totally upside down, totally countercultural kingdom. And that's the invitation today. So what Jesus is going to do through this text is he's going to totally Coriolis our way of thinking about generosity. Verse 1. And it begins with this. Beware. Stop. Beware. Whenever I hear this beware, I can't help but flash back to early 2000s, and I hear the rapper Mystical in my head saying, Danger! (laughs) Danger! Get on the flow, stop. First of all, to all you sinners who know that song, you need to repent. (laughs) Repent. Y'all was getting a little bit too happy. But I hear the word danger, beware, And it reminds me of if you're driving down the street and you see a neon sign and it says the words beware on it, it has flashing lights. What is that sign saying to you? It's saying that there is something up ahead that can totally destroy your life. And this is the scary thing. You're likely not going to see it coming. Beware. Be alert. Be vigilant. Okay, Jesus, what do we need to be aware and alert for? Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I got to, wait a second, Jesus. Hold, Hold on, hold on, Jesus. Stop right there. It sounds like you're contradicting yourself. It sounds like you're contradicting yourself. So I showed up early, and I've been listening to you from the beginning. I've been taking notes in my moleskin scroll. And earlier you said, and I quote, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp or put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Which one is it, Jesus? Is it basket or no basket? Light or dark? Hidden or seen? Which one is it? It seems like you're contradicting yourself. 
This is what I think Jesus is trying to get us to understand. And I think it's helpful to break this section into two halves. The first part of it says, beware of practicing your righteousness. So let's think about this word practice. What does it mean to practice? Uh, You wake up or you woke up one Christmas morning and there was a bike underneath the tree. And you didn't know how to ride the bike. You opened up the gift and you looked at it and then you looked down and see that there's no training wheel. So you freaked out, but eventually you got on the bike. And when you got on the bike, you fell off the bike because you did not know how to ride it. But you know what? You got back on it and you learned how to balance because you practiced. And the more you practice, eventually you learn how to pedal. And next thing you know, you can ride a bike without even thinking about it. Practice isn't a bad thing. Unless if you're Allen Iverson. Practice, some of y'all get that, some of you don't. Google it later. Practice is not a bad thing. Practice, the definition is simply this, to perform an activity or an exercise, a skill, repeatedly or regularly in order to improve or maintain proficiency. That's not a bad thing. So I don't think Jesus is saying, beware of practicing. I don't think his issue is with the action of practice. What I think he's poking out is the object being practiced. And the object in this is righteousness. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. What is righteousness? A simple definition can be a condition acceptable to God. A condition acceptable to God. Another way to say it is to be in right standing with God. That sounds like a wonderful thing. But my question to you is, How do you practice that? How do you practice right standing with God? That that sounds weird, but this is what we all know. We've all tried it, haven't we? We all have our different methods of practicing righteousness. Um, I got saved on October 17, 2008 in the back of a cop car. And uh, in after uh, getting arrested, I went to jail, and inside of the jail cell was a small green Gideon Bible. And I read it from cover to cover, and I came out a Christian. And I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. So I started going to a small Baptocostal church in Dale City. And at that Baptocostal church, I learned how to love Jesus with all my heart. I learned how to cry out to him. I learned how to just how to follow him faithfully. But I also learned something else. At this small Baptocostal church, we knew how to go in. See, I know I got some charismatic friends up in here. We, like, we went in. Let me tell you what going in is. Going in is, it's that thing you do so that you get into the presence of the Lord. It's how you get lathered up with the Holy Ghost. The music get to going, that leg get to shaking. Woo! That right note gets hit, and, and you begin to just feel the presence of the Lord. Next thing you know, you running around the building. We used to go in. We used to have 24-7 prayer when we in there going back and forth and crying out to the Lord. We went in. We would bust out the oil. We're anointing people, people falling out. You had to be trained to be a catcher. Like, we went in. The question is, is that what Jesus is talking about when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness? I don't think it is. You want to know why? Because we all have our different forms of going in. 
for us growing up, it was running around and, and crying out to the Lord. What's your form of going in? For some of us, we're more con contemplative, and so we, we like to have a, 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 a devotional time, and we're religious about it. Some of us, it's our Bible reading time. For some of us, it's hanging out with friends and talking about the things of the Lord. We all have our form of going in. For some of us, it's our righteousness is the number of fish stickers on the back of the car. How do you go in? This is the thing. I don't think Jesus is particularly talking about this, but this is the danger. These things that are good things that get us into the presence of the Lord, they be, when they become our means for righteousness, opposed to an outworking of our righteousness, they become a bad thing. When these things become the way that we see ourselves to be righteousness, to be righteous, opposed to Christ being righteousness for us, the good things become bad things. And so what Jesus is going to drill down on now is we have a motivational dilemma. A motivational dilemma. Jesus continues, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Important word in this text is this word seen, seen. Seen in the, in the Greek, it breaks down to the word theaomai, theaomai. Did you, do you notice what the very beginning sounds like? Thea, 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 thea. Theater. It's where we get our translation, theater. What Jesus is warning us of is using our Christian life and viewing ourselves like bogus Broadway performers. He doesn't want us to put our righteousness on display like we're in the scene of Hamilton. He is warning us from becoming stage plays for putting our righteousness on display. If I could break it down, I would break it down like this. Good deeds plus wrong motives equals bad standing. Good deeds plus wrong motives equals bad standing. Jesus wants us to, to take equal care of being alert and being vigilant about the motivation behind the good things. And so, like a good preacher, Jesus now is going to help us out because he knows we're going to kind of miss the point that he's making, and he's going to switch over into illustration mode, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, stop right there. Did you notice what he did there? Sneaky, sneaky Jesus. Did you see what he did there? It doesn't say in there, if you give. It doesn't say in here, if you happen to stumble into generosity. What it says is, thus, when you give. Jesus assumes that followers of him will be givers. This was especially important to first century Christians, but then also throughout the history of the Jewish people. One commentator says it like this. To the Jew, almsgiving or giving to the needy was the most sacred of all religious duties. How sacred it was may be seen from the fact that the Jews used the same word, tzedakah, 
both for righteousness and almsgiving. Same word. To give alms and to be righteous were one and the same. To give alms was to gain merit in the sight of God and was even to win atonement with forgiveness for past sins. It was a big deal. And what Jesus is saying is it's to be a big deal for us. Giving is a big deal. Now, we have a little bit difference from the Jewish perspective. Now, we do not give to win atonement. Jesus won atonement. We don't give to win atonement. We give from a place of atonement. And we give as a display of an atoned life. Not to gain, but from a place of atonement. We don't give for forgiveness. We give from forgiveness. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we respond with generosity. That's what the people of God do. Jesus expects, requires, demands that his followers be givers. So I must ask the question, are you a giver? Are you a giver? Is your heart filled with generosity and response to the gospel? This isn't only an important question that we ask within the church, but it's also an important question that's asked outside of the church. Recently, uh, there's been some hubbub in the news as presidential candidates have begun revealing their tax statements. And this is what we found out over the past couple of weeks. Beto O'Rourke, he gives one-third of 1% of what he earns to charity. Bernie Sanders, 3.4%. Kamala Harris, 1.4%. Joe Biden, 1.8%. Now, this is an easy thing to do right now. Throw tomatoes. Throw stones. How dare they? But let me ask the question. If there was a, another line up there and it said, you, would you be filled with dread right now? Would you be filled with embarrassment right now? This isn't something that's important out there. It's something that should be important in here. And this, is the, and this is the reality. Right now, we're in a weird moment in the, in, the, in the life of the body of Christ. We have two all times happening at the same time. We have all time giving is, is as high as it's ever been. All giving is as high as it's ever been. But also, it's as low as it's ever been. Giving is high for foundations and the wealthy. But giving is at an all-time low for median income and low-income individuals. And the lowest, uh, the lowest in, uh, group of individuals that give is the faith-based community. That should just strike us at the heart. God expects us to be givers, to be generous. It's a marker of a follower of Christ. Um, there's, if, if I'm meeting with someone that I'm discipling, I say, hey, I know you know how to go in. I know you know how to go in. I know you know how to do a, a quiet time. I've counted the number of fish stickers on the back of your car. I know you got that down, but if I really want to know the thermometer of your heart, you just need to show me two things. Show me your bank statement and your calendar. 
and I'll tell you your devotion to Christ. May we not be those who have to hide in shame. May our hearts burn for Christ in following him with devotion. So in addition to giving, what also matters is how we give. And so verse 2 continues with this. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You know what he's saying? This reminds me of a story. So once upon a time, I lived in darkness. Let me put that disclaimer out. And because of that, um, my weekly routine was to go to dance clubs at night. A brother liked to cut a rug, okay? Don't judge me. So I, I frequented dance clubs at night because I wanted to get my jig on, okay? And one night, I was there with my posse, and out of nowhere, we're all dancing, doing our Dougie and everything, and then the lights begin to dim, or more dim. So the lights begin... <laughs> The lights begin to dim, and out of the darkness, piercing through is this bright and radiant light. Everyone whips their necks around, and they behold the glory of dozens of sparklers protruding from an adult beverage bottle. And this bottle is being paraded through the middle of the dance floor by a posse, and they're pushing us peasants to the side. And, and, and they break through the outer courts and they begin to walk up the stairs into the Holy of Holies, known as the VIP. And the VIP, they, court, they curtain us peasants off. So there's a curtain and the curtain is splitting asunder. And inside, inside of the Holies of Holies is standing this bearded man. And, they, and he's known as Duke James Harden. He's standing there in his glory as the bottle is placed into his hands as all eyes are placed on him. What Jesus is saying is don't pull a James Harden. <laughs> don't pull a James Harden, okay? What Jesus is saying is when you give, don't put all eyes on you. Don't make a big deal out of it. Don't whip out a trumpet and, pay the, and play the soundtrack of your awesomeness. Don't toot your own horn. Don't, make, don't try to draw all attention to yourself. Give in such a way that all glory is given to God. Don't toot your own horn. Why? Because it's hypocritical. Now, before we talk about hypocrisy, I think it's helpful to talk about what it isn't. Because many of, I mean, we hear the word thrown around so much. Individuals will say, I'm not going to go to church. That's the place with all hypocrites. And I want to respond, well, you'll be in good company. But I'm, but I'm nicer than that, so I don't. Uh, I, I think the world doesn't understand what hypocrisy truly is. So before we talk about what it is, let's talk about what it isn't. Up here is called ideal. This is where ideal self lives. Ideal self is where all of our dreams, our aspirations, the people we want to be, and the way we wish the world was. This is ideal. Down here is something called reality. Reality is we haven't met our dreams. We haven't hit our goals. The world isn't the way we wish it was. 
reality. What many believe is that everything in between is called hypocrisy, but it isn't. It can be broken down like this. Hypocrisy is not the disparity between what we are, reality, and what we long to be, ideal. It is not the gap between what we want to do, ideal, and what we actually do, reality. Kevin DeYoung breaks it down further like this. Hypocrisy is the gap between public persona and private character. Hypocrisy is a failure to practice what we preach, appearing outwardly righteous to others while actually being full of uncleanness and self-indulgence. That's the definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Greek lexicon it gives us a couple words. A hypocrite is an actor, a stage player, a dissembler, or a pretender. The image that you should have when you think of a hypocrite is one of a mask. It's wearing a mask around. New Unger Bible uh, Dictionary says this, the hypocrite is a double person, natural and artificial at the same time. The first he keeps to himself and the other he puts on as he does clothes to make appearances before men. Hypocrite, hypocrite. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, God does war against the hypocrite. If you continue to read the Sermon on the Mount, when it gets to chapter 7, oh my goodness, Jesus has a lot to say about the hypocrite. He goes as far to say that the hypocrite is like a grave, a grave that's painted white on the outside, looks pretty on the outside, but on the inside is dead men's bones. Has a lot to say about hypocrites. And the question has to be, why? Why does God do such war against hypocrites? And it's because double damage is being done to those who wear a mask. Think of it. When you put on a mask, all that you get the way that you interact through the world is not in reality, it's through a projected life. And so when you put on a mask, and some masks are put on for good reason. Sometimes bad things have happened, and you're trying to protect yourself. So there are some good reasons that we put on masks. But eventually, that mask, it begins to take over. And before you know it, you begin to believe that you are the persona that you're putting out to the world. And that does deep internal damage for the one with the mask. But also, for those you're in relationship with, when you put on a mask, they never get to interact with who you truly are. And it's sort of like a jack-in-the-box. As you put out this image, but you're suppressing who you really are on the inside, one day you'll pop. Masks are dangerous. And so what Jesus is saying is, hypocrites, take off the mask. And you want to know the worst part about it. Why God continually talks about the hypocrite? Because God cannot save an ideal. God can't save an ideal. God can't save some future version of you. 
Jesus Christ did not come to this earth so that he could find you in your perfected state and bring you to himself. Jesus Christ did not live the life that you could not live. He did not die on the cross a bloody death so that he could meet some future version of you that you're trying to put out to the world. Jesus cannot save an ideal. You know who Jesus came for? You! The real you! The jacked up you! The messed up you! Jesus wants you right where you are. He cannot save an ideal version of you. And so I say this, filled with love. Masks are for two types of people. It's for Halloween participants and bank robbers. If you're neither one of those, take it off. Take it off. Take off the mask. Jesus wants you. But that's easier said than done. And it's for this reason. Jesus continues, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In three, in four verses, Jesus talks about a reward three times. Three times in four verses. And I think this is what he's trying to say. Question. How are skillful comedians rewarded? Not a trick question. How do you reward a comedian? With laughter. That's what a comedian wants. That's how you reward a comedian. How do you reward a prepared stage performer? A round of applause. That's how you reward a skillful stage play. Question, how do you reward a hypocrite? With mounds and mounds of accolades. I often say this to guys that I disciple. The people that scare me most in life are gifted people. Gifted people scare me. Gifted people scare me for this reason. When you're gifted, you get to hide behind your awesomeness. If you can get on this stage and strum real good, tinkle them keys, play beautiful music, have a beautiful voice, you rarely get called out on your ignorance. If you can go to work and go gangster on that spreadsheet, very rarely is someone going to ask you about your soul. Gifted people get to hide behind their giftedness. And scarier than that, you'll often get applauded for what God denounces. Beware. Be vigilant. God wants all of you. And so eventually, we lose touch of ourselves. And so Jesus wants us to take the mask off. And often, we spend way too much time virtue signaling rather than going to the virtuous one. Jesus wants to meet with us. Let me, as I land the plane, let me give you three practical steps, three practical ways that we can be countercultural, non-hypocritical, generous people. Three practical ways. Number one, get in proximity with the poor. Get in proximity with the poor. Jesus says this, but when you give to the needy, earlier we talked about Jesus assumes we give. Now I want to make it more personal. 
you have to find a way to be in proximity with the, with the poor. For some of us, it's going to be harder than others. Because what this is going to demand is that we bust out of our cultural cul-de-sacs. It's very easy in our lives to get insulated and to be surrounded with people that think like us, vote like us, drive the same cars as us, wear the same clothes as us. It's very easy to get insulated and isolated. What Jesus commands us to do is bust out of our cultural cul-de-sacs and get around those who are different than us. Um, I get to run a nonprofit in Northeast OKC, and when people ask, what do you do, I simply say this. We want to build bridges from the burbs to the block and from the block to the burbs. Why? Because I think both sides need to see that they need one another. If you are wealthy, you need the poor. You need the poor to teach you resiliency. You need the poor to teach you what does it look like to follow Jesus when everything is stacked against you. You need the poor in your life. If you're poor, you need the wealthy. You need to know that they don't hate you and they're not trying to keep you down. You need to understand that they love Jesus too. You need the wealthy in your life. And so the challenge for you is, Get in proximity with the poor. Because Jesus uniquely identifies with the poor. And there's three ways you can do it. Draw near with your time. Volunteer for an organization. Just find a way to give time, get, get intentional time with the poor. Use your talents as an inroad, the way God has gifted you. Use, it for the, use your privilege for the privilege of others. Use what God has given you on behalf of the poor. And then third, we're talking about today, use your treasure. David Murray says this, Our wallet is often the last citadel to fall to God's rule. And even when it does fall, it gets rebuilt and resecured again all too quickly. Use your wallet. Use your wallet to actually be a blessing to the poor. Because Jesus has given it to you so that you can be a blessing. Get in proximity with the poor. Second, Jesus says this, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What he's saying there is, don't rationalize your way out of being generous. Do not rationalize your way out of giving. This is what will happen. You'll get in proximity with the poor and someone will need a meal. Your left hand will begin reaching into the pocket to grab a $5 bill so that you can be a blessing used of the Lord. And immediately your right hand is going to say, stop it. What will they do with that $5 bill? They're just going to use it on liquor. They're not going to go get something to eat. They're going to squander it and use it irresponsibly. What you need to do is just leave them with the prayer. Stop it. This is the question. What if Jesus would have done that to you? What if Jesus would have done that to you? I'm not going to go to the cross until they actually deserve it. Until they do harder, do better, pull their bootstraps, I'm not going to die for them. I'm actually going to withhold until they deserve it. Where would we be? 
Since Jesus didn't do that to us, we don't do it to our brother. Don't rationalize your way out of giving. Third and final, wage war. Wage war. Verse 4 says this, So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me answer the question. Should our giving be secret? Should our giving be secret? Should we never write our names on a check? Should we avoid giving online because you have to type in your name? No. But should our giving be secret? Sometimes. Here's, the, here's I think, the command. You need to have a PhD in your heart. If you know that your possessions possess you, do war. Don't take greed lightly. If you know, even as I'm speaking, and I'm talking about your wallet, and we're talking about giving, something goes through your spine, and you want to bum rush the stage. If you know that inside of your heart is captivated with materialism and wealth worship, and you know that it has hold of you, do war. And what that may mean for you, number one, pray. Ask God, does this have a hold of you? Ask him to release you from the clutches of it. Pray. But then second, like Mary pouring out the alabaster box, do something radical. For some people, you, you may need to just go home. Before you get home, stop by the bank, pull out some money, stuff some envelopes, and drop them off to some people that need it like a hood Santa Claus. Do something radical. Wage war against consumerism. Be a blessing. Be used of God. And when you do it anonymously, when you slip that envelope under a doormat and you get no praise for it, it's inoculating your heart. Jesus is doing work in your heart as you give anonymously because you know who gets the praise, you know who gets the accolades, no one but the Lord. Wage war.